Victorian True Crime Podcast. My name is Kim, and while I was researching this episode, I found myself spending a lot of time trying to get inside the mind of the person we're discussing tonight. She was a black widow, and she was also an angel of death. But why? Did she think she was showing mercy to her victims? Was she herself a victim of society's failures and lack of support? Or was she just a cold, callous murderer? This is the story of Derby Poisoner Lydia Sherman. But first, a Victorian society tip. In tonight's episode, I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of nursing. So I wanted to share some rules from an 1887 nursing job description. Daily sweep and mop the floors of your ward, dust the patient's furniture and windowsills. Maintain an even temperature in your ward by bringing in a scuttle of coal for the day's business. Light is important to observe the patient's condition. Therefore, each day, fill kerosene lamps, clean chimneys, and trim wicks. The nurse's notes are important in aiding your physician's work. Make your pens carefully. You may whittle nubs to your individual taste. Each nurse on day duty will report every day at 7 a.m. and leave at 8 p.m., except on the Sabbath, on which day she will be off from 12 noon to 2 p.m. Graduate nurses in good standing with the director of nurses will be given an evening off each week for courting purposes, or two evenings a week if you go to church regularly. Each nurse should lay aside from each payday a goodly sum of her earnings for her benefits during her declining years, so that she will not become a burden. For example, if you earn $30 a month, you should set aside $15. Any nurse who smokes, uses liquor in any form, gets her hair done at a beauty shop, or frequents dance halls will give the director of nurses good reason to suspect her worth, intentions, and integrity. The nurse who performs her labors and serves her patients and doctors faithfully and without fault for a period of five years will be given an increase by the hospital administration of five cents per day. Good Night for Our Murder is a true crime podcast that does cover stories including death, violence, sexual assault, and other adult themes. Tonight's story involves the death of children. Please take care while listening. Very little is known about the facts of Lydia Sherman's childhood, and even less is known about the upbringing that shaped her. What we do know is that she was born as Lydia Danbury on December 24th, Christmas Eve, of 1824 in Burlington, New Jersey, in the U.S. Sadly, it's reported that she was orphaned at a young age of only nine months, after which she was cared for by her uncle, who raised her on his farm until about the age of 16. She was described as slim and pretty, with dark hair, blue eyes, and porcelain skin. After the age of 16, she went to live with her brother in nearby New Brunswick, New Jersey, where she worked as a tailor and devoutly attended the local Methodist church. This is where she met Edward Strzok at the age of 18. We can assume Edward was a bit older than her, having already been whittled once and already having at least two children of his own, I think. Some sources say four, some say up to six children. Either way, at the young age of 18, Lydia marries Edward. They quickly welcome a baby girl named Josephine, but she does not survive. Between the years of 1846 and 1863, Edward and Lydia would go on to have six children together. But in the year 1864, things get bleak. Edward had secured a job on New York's new Metropolitan Police Force. But one day, they received a report that a robbery was in progress, and Edward was called as one of the responding officers. 
During that robbery, someone was murdered, and in the aftermath, it was reported that it took an exceptionally long time for the police to arrive. The insinuation was that Edward didn't want to put himself at risk by responding to a robbery in progress and had purposefully delayed reporting to the scene. He denied it, of course, but an inquest found his actions were grounds for dismissal, and he lost his job with the police force. This plunged Edward into a serious, serious depression. He felt so depressed and ashamed that he could hardly even leave the house anymore. Lydia was like, hello, we have six, seven, eight, nine kids to feed. You have got to get back on your feet. But it was no use and Edward became increasingly despondent and the family started to find themselves in dire straits financially. So Lydia reaches out to his old boss, the police captain, who had once upon a time been a friend of Edward's, and she asked, can you help? Did he have any advice for her? And Edward's old friend, the police captain, said, yeah, he's in a pretty bad way. You might as well have him committed to the lunatic asylum. But that's going to solve very little for Lydia. You see, she needs money. And being a woman with six plus kids to care for and getting a job of her own to support their family was not really an option. She would work herself to the bone and still not have enough to support them. Divorce laws at the time specified that you needed a reason to get divorced. And that reason had to be something like infidelity. It couldn't be something intangible like irreconcilable differences like we have today. Basically, if a couple was seeking divorce, it had to be someone's fault. And if Edward was committed, he couldn't be at fault. And how would she get married again if she said, oh, my husband was in the insane asylum, so I committed infidelity? How was she going to find a husband after that? So she's kind of between a rock and a hard place and doesn't think it wise to take the police chief's advice to have him committed. But another peer of Edwards, another sergeant who lived in the same building as them, had another idea for her. He said, why don't you, quote, out him out of the way? Then proceeded to recommend she give her husband just a little bit of arsenic and instructed her where to get it and how to administer the dose. Did Lydia torment herself over this, or did she jump at the chance? We don't know, but either way, it's exactly what she did. She added a thimbleful of arsenic to his oatmeal, and she waited. He became violently sick, and when a doctor was called, he considered the mental and physical state of Edward and diagnosed him with a softening of the brain and told his weeping wife that he would never recover. By 8 p.m. that evening, Edward was dead. And for a while, this solved some of Lydia's problems. She was no longer obligated to care for someone who had become a burden. And given his mental state, it was thought at the time that perhaps it was the kinder option. And for a while, she received the sympathy and support of her community as a grieving widow. But when we look at the big picture, Lydia still had a lot of problems. I mean, she had six kids to care for and still no steady source of income. She still had her seamstress work and had started working as a nurse, but between work and caring for her children, this was not sustainable. If only there weren't so many mouths to feed. Three months later, Lydia decides to do the same to her three youngest children as she did to her husband. And in July of 1864, one-year-old William, four-year-old Edward, and six-year-old Martha are all said to have died from gastric fever. No one at this time is suspicious. The mortality rate of children under about the age of five was extremely high during that time period after all. Surviving now is 12-year-old Ann Eliza, 14-year-old George, and 18-year-old daughter Lydia. George is actually earning $2.50 a week as a painter, which keeps him safe for a while, but he comes down with symptoms of what was known as painter's colic, 
which today we call lead poisoning. Lead was a common ingredient in paint that was added to expedite drying time and increase durability, and painter's colic was just kind of thought of as an occupational hazard of being a painter. Symptoms are abdominal pain, constipation, headaches, irritability, memory problems, and tingling in the hands and feet. And when it takes George more than a week to recover, Lydia decides to poison him with arsenic as well. This leaves Annalisa, who at only 12 years old is kind of still young to be useful. So when Annalisa comes down with a fever that winter, Lydia seizes the opportunity and poisons her too. Now I found some sources saying Lydia's eldest daughter died of natural causes that winter, but another source says she was forced to quit her job to care for Annalisa, so she was no longer pulling in income and Lydia decided to poison her as well. Either version could be true. But in the end, what we're looking at is Lydia has poisoned her husband and six of her own children, all within about six months of one another. Did anyone notice? Did anyone try and stop her? I found one source that her stepson became suspicious and tried to report his suspicion to the district attorney, but nothing ever came of it. So Lydia's flying solo now, and she's gotten a job selling sewing machines. She meets a client, John Curtis, who is impressed with her nursing experience, and he hires her to care for his elderly mother in Stratford, Connecticut. Let's talk for a moment about Lydia's nursing experience. So aside from the poisoning bit, Lydia's nursing is probably not anywhere near the caliber of care you and I expect today. In the early 1800s, the prevailing thought was women should not work. Women should only be wives. In the UK, though, there were simply not enough husbands to go around. The women outnumbered the men. So some women had to go to work, usually as a domestic servant if the work could be found. Now, remember there weren't really hospitals back then like we have today. The sick and injured were cared for by family members in their own homes. But if you could afford it, the better option was to hire a nurse. Nursing was kind of considered one of the lowest ranking positions in the household. You had to be available around the clock, handle bodily fluids. You understand. So if you could find someone willing to do it, the job was theirs. About the 1840s to 1860s, though, sisterhoods of religious organizations began training programs in nursing. Due to their work with caring for the poor, the nursing bit just went hand in hand. From here, more formal training went on to be established, but this is in the UK, remember, it took a while for this to come over to the US. And it wasn't until 1873 that the first official nurse educational programs were established in the US. So in 1864, there are no board certifications to check or anything of that sort. Pretty much Lydia's qualifications are that she had six children and maybe cared for some sick family members or other people a couple of times. So all this sounds well and good to Mr. Curtis, and he sends Lydia off to care for his mother in Connecticut. She works there for about eight months before meeting a rich widower named Dennis Hurlbert. Lydia's about 40 years old by now, and though it's uncertain how old Mr. Hurlbert is exactly, he's described as being many years her senior. And he offers her a job as a housekeeper. This would be a step up for Lydia, so she accepts. And if she plays her cards right, she may even be able to charm old Herbert, as he was known, into making her his wife. And her plan works. It's said that within a few days of beginning her employment with him, he proposed, and shortly thereafter, they were married. Now, Dennis didn't enjoy the best of health. He was often plagued by stomach problems in the lake. But after about 14 months of marriage, Lydia notices Dennis's hands are shaking as he tries to shave for church. He confides that, yes, more and more lately, the shakiness has been a problem, along with dizziness and shortness of breath. And it isn't long before Lydia does it again. She slips arsenic into his clam chowder and the digestive bitters that he uses to treat his stomach, and it takes 
three days of profound and violent sickness before he dies. As his wife, though, Dennis has willed his estate and home to Lydia. And Lydia inherits 20000 in cash and the home worth 10000 That's about 380000 in cash and nearly 200000 for the house in today money. So Lydia has a bit of inheritance, but she realizes this won't last forever, so she starts looking for work. She answers an ad for a housekeeper position in the Derby, Connecticut home of Horatio Sherman. Mr. Sherman is recently widowed with an infant son, Frankie, and 14-year-old daughter, Ada, left in his household. He has two other children with his late wife as well, but it seems they are out of the house by this age. Also living with him is his late wife's mother, who was taking care of the baby. He hires Lydia as his housekeeper, but after a short while, he realizes she has stolen his heart as well, and he proposes marriage. Lydia and Horatio Sherman are married only about eight months or so after their late spouses have passed away. Now, though, as Horatio's wife, it becomes apparent to Lydia that Horatio has a bit of a drinking problem, and perhaps she's made a mistake. He laments to her the fact that his mother-in-law of his deceased wife is still hanging around, and it's causing him great distress. On top of that, the baby just doesn't seem to be thriving, and he wishes the end would just come already. That way, his mother-in-law wouldn't have to hang around either. Lydia knows what to do about this, and she wastes no time before slipping a bit of arsenic into the baby's milk, and he dies shortly thereafter. It seems by this point that Lydia just has no patience for having children around, and just two months later, when Horatio's daughter Ada comes down with the flu, Lydia again seizes the opportunity and poisons her with arsenic as well. Maybe she thought this would ease the burden on Horatio and he wouldn't need to rely on alcohol so much to cope with day-to-day life, but she is wrong. It has the complete opposite effect. It plunges him into a deep depression that he copes with by drinking. In fact, he reportedly goes on a bit of a bender, during which, of course, he becomes violently ill. True to form, Lydia is going to try to poison her way out of this situation as well. She poisons one of his bottles of brandy and Horatio becomes even sicker. So sick that a doctor is called, and when the doctor arrives, he becomes suspicious that there is something other than too much liquor making Horatio sick. It's not long thereafter that Horatio dies as well, and Lydia is widowed for the third time. This time, though, the doctor orders an autopsy, and some of Horatio's organs are sent away to Yale College for testing. The results come back as positive for large quantities of arsenic. So they order Horatio's two children and Lydia's second husband, Dennis Hurlbert, to be exhumed and have their bodies tested as well. And again, they discover large quantities of arsenic in their systems. And finally, finally, authorities put a stop to the serial poisonings of Lydia Sherman. By this time, Lydia has moved back to New Brunswick, New Jersey to be with her family. But officials find her, they arrest her in June of 1872, and bring her back to New Haven, Connecticut to stand trial for the second-degree murder of her third husband, Horatio Sherman. The press dubs her the Derby Poisoner after the Connecticut town in which she committed her last three poisonings, and her trial lasts eight days. I believe she pled not guilty, her defense arguing that Horatio either accidentally poisoned himself or he committed suicide, but it doesn't work. The jury finds her guilty, and she is sent to prison to await her sentencing. While there, she confesses to intentionally killing all three of her husbands, and I believe all eight of her children and stepchildren. In fact, her dictated confession became a best-selling book titled The Poison Fiend, Life and Conviction of Lydia Sherman, the Modern Borgia. 
You can read it for free online if you like, but in full transparency, I did not read it because I hate her and cannot read a mother's own words about how she harmed her own children. In January of 1873, Lydia is sentenced to life in Wethersfield State Prison. It's widely remarked upon how if a man were have to committed these crimes, they would have been hung. The life in prison sentence was an unusual one for this case. Usually, this is the part of the story where I tell you how long our subjects survived in prison before they died and where they're buried at, but there's more. Four years into her sentence, Lydia escapes. Some sources blame a careless matron, and others say she faked an illness and managed to escape. In my opinion, both explanations probably have some truth to them. Bottom line, though, she escaped, and with the help of friends, she makes her way to Providence, Rhode Island. I don't know how someone who confesses to murdering three husbands and eight children still has any friends, but either way, she arrives in Providence and she's going to stick to what she knows. She gets a job as a housekeeper for a rich widower. This time, though, she accidentally gives two names to a hotel owner and they're suspicious enough to report her. They likely were only reporting her for fraud or some such, but once she's reported, authorities realize it's the escaped convict, Lydia Sherman, and they bring her back to prison in Connecticut. All in all, she was only free for about a week. She died of cancer after several weeks of very bad health in prison in May 1878. It is unknown where she's buried. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, I spent a lot of time thinking about Lydia's motives, and then I realized, I don't care, she was horrible. And I do have a bit of a palate cleanser episode lined up for you later this month, since this one was pretty intense. If you head over to Instagram or TikTok at A Good Night for a Murder, you can see some photos of Lydia, her third husband, and some illustrations from the book detailing her confession. You can also see the photos and source links on the episode blog on my website at agoodnightforamurder.com. While you're on the website, you can sign up for the Good Night for a Murder newsletter. Each month, I send an episode roundup, reveal of next month's episodes, and other goodies like extra Victorian society tips, book recommendations, and more. Patreon bonus content. I am truly very sorry, but I did not prepare any bonus content for this episode. Truth be told, I spent so much time researching the H.H. Holmes episode a few episodes back that it put me very much behind schedule. So I'm going to go ahead and skip the bonus content for both episodes in November, and we'll try to pick it back up next month. You can still sign up at any of the tiers and get the benefits and listen to the back catalog of bonus content, but there won't be any news stories added this month. As I've mentioned, I am a team of one, and I have to prioritize the regular episodes, otherwise there will be no podcast. So I very much appreciate everyone's understanding. Despite that, if you are curious about the Patreon or want to learn more about the podcast, you can visit agoodnightforamurder.com. Also follow me on Instagram or TikTok at agoodnightforamurder. Please rate and review and share with friends. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again soon. Bye.